even what we know in marriage. And we have to extend that to one another, and we have to extend that uh, to our kids, or else they will give up on Jesus. This passage in Hebrews uh, talks about this um, in the middle, uh, from verses uh, really uh, 2 through 10. Um, and so we saw that there's, it starts off talking about these sacrifices that are repeated over and over and over again, these religious rituals performed over and over again, year after year. But I want you to hone in with me in verses uh, 5 through 10. Look what it says. Who is talking in this religious quote? There's a quote there. You can tell it's a quote because it's all set in type. It says, when Christ came into the world, Christ said. So Jesus is talking. And what does Jesus say in this quotation about sacrifice and offering? Well, the book of Hebrews is really just a sermon. And so he quotes the text and then he explains the text in verses 8 and 9. So look down at verses 8 and 9. He says, first... Jesus said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. He puts all of the negative clauses together. He's saying that God did not want sacrifices and offerings, that God took no pleasure with all the animals that were being slaughtered and burned and eaten and elaborate rituals that we've been studying for months when we talked about the Day of Atonement, when we talked about sin offering and fellowship offering. And I know that you start to have this, this uh, what do you call it, uh, your objection starts to, to come up, and Hebrews knows that too. So Hebrews goes ahead and says, Hebrews goes ahead and says, yes, I know that the sacrifices were offered in accordance with the law. You may be feeling, wait, didn't God tell us to do the sacrifices, and yet now God is saying he didn't want the sacrifices. It feels like playing cards with a toddler. If you've ever played cards with a toddler, it reminds me of that scene in Big Daddy where the cards change every time, and the answer is always, I win! That God's just changing the rules as he goes along. But Hebrews goes on to say, yes, the sacrifice was offered in accordance with the law, but it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus shows us the heart of all sacrifice, of all spirituality, when he says this, here I am. I have come to do your will. Here I am. I have come to do your will. And this is our first point. This is our first point. God does not want your rituals. He wants a relationship. God doesn't want your rituals. He wants a relationship. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying here? He is saying, you don't want just my offerings. You don't just want my stuff. You want me. I Here I am. Here is all of me. I will do your will. Here I am. All of me to do your will. What we see here, Jesus is saying, God's not angry about what you gave, but about what you held back. God's not angry about what you gave, but about what you held back. Because God doesn't want your livestock. God wants your life. God doesn't want your herd. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your treasure. He wants to be your treasure. He wants you to do his will and not just give him the bodies of your animals, but to give him your body and your mind and your heart and your soul. He's not angry about sacrifices or he he's not angry about sacrifices he's angry about sacrifices that don't come uh, with our heart and our mind and soul he's angry because you've obeyed the commandments about sacrifice without obeying the greatest commandment you see it's possible to obey every command about sacrifice without obeying the greatest command which is that you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
on these two hang all the law and all the prophets. If you fail at loving God and loving neighbor, you cannot succeed at either. But if you succeed at loving God and loving neighbor, you cannot fail at either. It's a quote from John Ortberg, just for free. I wish I did, but I didn't make it up. Where did Jesus get this idea from? This idea that God doesn't just want your stuff. He wants you. That God doesn't want just sacrifice. He wants willing hearts to say, here I am, God. All of me. Use me however you want. Where did he get this idea? Because at first it seems like a radical change when Jesus says, sacrifice and offerings you do not want, nor were you delighted in them. But he's really just saying what all of the Bible has been saying. He's really trying to drive us to the goal of sacrifice. What's fascinating about this is it says in verse 5 that Jesus said this. But nowhere in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, does Jesus actually say this. In fact, it's a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which we know Jesus knows because he would have known the Psalter. He loves to quote Psalms all the time. And he's actually saying, these words were written about me. But they were also written by David. You don't have to turn to Psalm 40. But in Psalm 40, uh, we see David is crushed by the weight of his sin. And he writes sentences like this. My sins have taken over. I cannot see my way out. My sins are more than the hairs on my head. And my heart cannot bear it. And a ritualistic person would look to David and hear him say, hear him talk about all this and say, David, don't worry. Just go get a few bulls and a few goats and all this will go away. David, just go to confession. Just walk into the stall. Say it all out loud and, and all this will go away. Say five Hail Marys and, and give uh, 25% to the poor and all this will go away. Just write God a check and he'll forget the whole thing. But David knows there is more to this than paying bills. This is not an impersonal transaction like paying taxes or more appropriately paying your speeding ticket. And so David famously says something very, very similar in his most famous psalm, uh, not, maybe not his most famous one, but in maybe his second most famous, Psalm 51, which is written after he uses, uh, after he's been confronted publicly by Nathan for using his political power to coerce and assault Bathsheba and then murder her husband. And he's confronted publicly and he writes this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. Even after grievous sin, David recognizes that the state of his heart was more important than the sacrifices he offered. His heartfelt repentance was the point of his sacrifices. David saw and recognized regularly that the point of animal sacrifices was to impress upon us the costliness of sin and the cost of redemption so that we would be crushed by the weight of our sin and cry out for a savior, that we would be overwhelmed with the, the, the consequences of our actions and cling to God's grace. They were meant to invite us, these sacrifices, these animals' uh, deaths, we're meant to invite us at the wonder of God's love that doesn't give up on us, but provides a way forward for us. To marvel at God's grace and to anticipate the day when Jesus would come and wipe away all sin. They were meant to cause us to cry out, Jesus, do away with this, remake me. 
And we see that in Hebrews 10.10, the goal of all sacrifice is mentioned. Hebrews 10.10 says, we have all been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once and for all. So our second point that I've just explained is that God doesn't want repayment. He wants repentance. He doesn't want repayment via ritual. He wants repentance via submission, via love, via a heart that breaks for having hurt its beloved. And the third one, we're going to see here, we see in this, uh, that this is, that what God wants is, what God loves is a heart that says, here I am, here I am. I know I've messed up. My heart is broken over it. Heal me, cleanse me, fix me, redeem me. I need you, Jesus. And rituals all came into existence for a very good reason. Rituals are not in and of themselves a bad thing. But our third point is this. God hates, God hates, hates empty rituals. Hates, detests, loathes. You just heard uh, Becky read from Isaiah chapter 1. You heard it a minute ago, read from the NIV. But listen to how uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. God's asking you, what is this frenzy of sacrifices? Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices? Maybe. Of rams and plump grain-fed calves. Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls and lambs and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there doing this and that, all of this sheer commotion in in the place provided for worship, quit your worship charades. I cannot stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences and weekly Sabbaths and special meetings, 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 meetings. I cannot stand one more meeting Meeting for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion while you go on sinning. When will you put on your next prayer? When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or how loud or how often you pray, I will not listen. And you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. You go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of evil doing so that I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. Friends, can you imagine God saying that to you? God is indicting the Israelites for obeying the rituals, for being very, 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 very serious about... um, about the ritual forms of worship while withholding their hearts. They show up at church all the time. They're there every time the doors are open. They pray before every meal, even bedtimes, but they're just going through the motions. They're just jumping through the hoops. They are not doing so because it's the right thing to do, or they are doing it because it is the right thing to do, not because they are in love with God, not because they want to cherish God. Their worship is all about serving God, not savoring God. It is a performance to impress God and impress human beings, not an interaction to enjoy God. They have been going through the motions when they're at church, but as soon as they walk into the office, they lose all their religion. They use all their these and their thous until they sit down in the bleachers at a Little League game when they employ a whole different lexicon of four-letter words. 
always, this always reminds me of that scene in The Godfather where he is uh, going to be the godfather of his nephew. And they're in the church uh, having the baby baptized. And he keeps saying the words, the, the, the priest says, do you renounce evil and its ways in the world? And it splits from him saying, I renounce them to a hit he just ordered on a rival mob boss. Remember the sacrifices were meant to draw our hearts to God and to teach us that sin is expensive and that God is gracious. But the same way that the Israelites missed the point of sacrifices and settled for religious ritual, I'm afraid you and I are more guilty of practicing religious ritual while neglecting the relational intimacy that was secured for us by Jesus' death and resurrection. What has been given to you is far greater than what was given to the Israelites. Do you understand Solomon met with the Lord twice? Solomon. Solomon. Like, he's got books in the Bible. And he met with the Lord twice. Like, that's crazy. Whereas you have been given the Holy Spirit, the Lord talks to you, will inhabit you, dwell inside of you in a way that only happened intermittently in the Old Testament. And And when we neglect that to just go through these religious motions, we are grievously guilty. And so right now I'm asking you, forget me, in the words of Isaiah, God is asking you, have you been going through the motions? Is your Christianity about religious observance or about relational intimacy? And I hope that you do not believe the lie that just because you don't kill animals on Sunday mornings, you're, that you are not capable of just offering God empty sacrifices. This happens all the time with heartless, mindless religiosity. Do you show up at church because it's the right thing to do? Instead of coming to see and hear and love God. Do you baptize your kid? Did you baptize your kids? Because that's just what you do. Instead of because you desperately want your children to know personally and love Jesus. And you're crushed by the awareness that you are so sinful you cannot parent this child alone. Worse, did you baptize your child believing it was a magic ritual to guarantee their salvation? Do you pay a full tithe, but you do so like buying admission to heaven? Sure, you know all the words to Amazing Grace, but do you ever burst into spontaneous song at God's goodness? Into a hallelujah just because God is good and you're overwhelmed with that goodness? Do you repeat the same old tired prayers with no thoughtfulness? Do you rush the same blessing before every meal just so you can eat? Do you spend more time considering the state of your clothes before coming to church than you do considering the state of your heart before walking into God's presence? Do you take the Lord's Supper like a magic pill, but you've never sat down and invited Jesus to your table and eaten with him? Friends, I think there's a perpetual temptation to just go through the motions to keep doing the same things but forget why we're doing them. We see it over and over and over again in the Bible that the outward form stays the same, but the heart has been vacated. And so Jesus will call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're beautiful. You've gotten all the outside stuff good. But the inside, the heart is is full of dead, disgusting, rotting bones. It's empty. He says you clean the outside of the cup, but you've forgotten to clean the inside of the cup. I think this is a temptation for every human being. To keep both as individuals, but also as a church. Also as a church. Churches, all churches, 
tend towards getting obsessed regularly with outward forms rather than inward purpose. Churches cling to the way we perform the ritual long after they forgot why they started the ritual in the first place. All struggles, all churches struggle with this. One-year-old churches, six-year-old churches, 15-year-old churches, 160-year-old churches, but it especially touches churches the older they are and the more traditional they think of themselves. It comes out often in the most in that deadly sentence, quote, we have always done it this way. When that's the best reason we have for doing something, we're in trouble. Period. Whether it's me as a human being or us as a family. Churches tend to get obsessed about clothes or music or the instruments or the shape of the building or the color of the people in there. About the order of service or even the time of service. We tend to focus on these outward things that we can control, that we can see without thinking, why did we start doing it that way in the first place? Why did we start in the first place? Why did we choose Sunday school in the first place? Why did we start printing a bulletin in the first place? Why did we put Bibles in the pews in the first place? This is all churches but it especially grabs a hold of old people because we have more history to choose from. It's easier to obsess on something because there's a lot of it. But God doesn't want our dutiful, begrudging religiosity. God wants our hearts. And so we, this starts to inform everything we do. When we talk about uh, music and worship, the first question uh, we ask is how did the congregation sing? Not did we play well? Did we choose the right songs? Not did we like the music? But when Keely and I talk and when the worship, we, start, we ask the question, how did the congregation sing? Because the goal is not perfect instrumentation or even you guys singing perfectly. I would rather you guys sing your ever-loving hearts out and miss every single note than to get it technically perfect and not realize what you're doing. If we get technically perfect and we miss God, then let's just shut it down. Let's just close it up. I've seen churches get so proud of their music program that they've forgotten who they're singing to. God wants our genuine worship, our heartfelt praise. And so let me just ask you, how do you know if this is you? How do you know if you're just a religious conservative, but you're not actually a Christian? How do you know practicing churchianity and not Christianity. I almost heard a whole different sermon that was called, uh, you might like, <laughs> you might be a religious hypocrite if, and it was going to be off of Jeff Foxworthy's old uh, bit about you might be a redneck if, <clears throat> but I didn't, because it would be too offensive. Maybe I'll put it on a blog or something later, I'll write a book. But I just want to point out two huge indicators, two huge indicators, both of them come from Jesus. The first is how is your private prayer life? The first indicator that you are obeying ritual and not loving Jesus, that you go to church but you are not the church, is your private prayer life. Do you pray? 
by yourself? Do you pray when things are good or only when things are bad? Do you pray regularly? Do you find yourself jumping into prayer spontaneously? People who practice ritual only pray when the ritual says pray. They may pray before bed. They may pray at every meal. But it's just because it's, that's what you do. And the words are generally rote. But the prayer life is dry. Second part of that is not just do you pray by yourself, but is there wonder and joy in your prayer life? Do you find yourself talking to God throughout the day or only when you need something, only saying uh, the same things over and over again? Do you, when you talk to God, do you pour out your heart to him? Do you talk honestly about the, the events of that day and how they're making you feel and, and where you need God to show up and, and where you have these doubts that God just hasn't met? And, and where does your world come from stirring? Do you, do you find yourself getting emotional in prayer? I'm not saying cry. I just said feeling at all. Any feeling. Or are you constantly self-centering to make sure you say the right thing? One of the ways you know ritual has in, is, is invaded every church is the number of people who would say, I'm afraid to pray out loud because I don't know what to say. Like it, the only way that would ever be an important thing is if there was a ritual you had to adhere to. But if prayer is just talking, then every single human being who has language skills knows how to talk. And the God of the universe is capable of listening to you and understanding even if you say something badly. If I can understand my four-year-old, the God of the universe can understand you, I guarantee you. And so when I self-censure trying to sound right when I pray, I actually sound stupid and I'm no longer praying. This is why Jesus attacks the Pharisees in Matthew 6. You remember this, right? He says, you think you will be heard because of your long prayers. He says, when you give, you go and you ring bells and you draw attention to yourself. When you fast, you, uh, you make yourself look miserable. And he says, you do all of that to be seen by men. And you know what his cure was? He says, go and pray in secret. Go and fast in secret. Go and give in secret. Don't announce it. Don't tell anybody. Don't get a single reward for it on this earth. Because if you only pray in public with others, if you only pray when you have to, it shows that your relationship with God has grown really, really close. You know this is true relationally. You and I have all seen loveless marriages. You've seen, you've seen people who live together unhappily who are more like roommates than lovers. They live in the same house, but they only speak when the bills need to be paid or when there's a problem to be addressed. They watch different TV shows in different ends of the house. They eat different TV dinners. Maybe they eat together, but they do so in silence or rehearsing the same conversation. And our, my heart breaks for everyone in that place. If that's you, we love you. We are here for you and for your marriage. But wouldn't you rather have a relationship where you've both fallen in love and then you've gone through that period where, you're, like, where you fall out of love but you keep loving anyways and you learn to love the real person in front of you and so you spend every day texting throughout work, planning the next time you can chat and be together, talking on the phone and on FaceTime and have the world's longest Snapchat, Snapchat streak. Isn't that what's called a streak? Isn't that right? Streak? It's called a streak, right? I'm not on Snapchat or Instagrams or any of those. 
where you're in love and you're, you, you talk not because you have to, but because you want to. That's what God wants for us. And we see that. That's what I was trying to point out in the beginning. In the beginning of this sermon when I, when I made you all uncomfortable about talking about sex. Because even sex was meant to point you to the intimacy that is available between you and God. Even that, the most intimate act human beings can make, is, not, is nothing, will pale in comparison to the union that God wants with you. That the, the, the greatest, that there has never been a rom-com made. There has never been a romantic novel written. There has never, never been a love story better than this book, than the God of the Bible giving up everything. He is the hero who gives up safety in the castle to go and rescue his damsel in distress. But the second indicator, the second indicator, the first one is whether you practice your spirituality in secret, whether you find yourself doing, loving God even when you don't have to love God. And that's what Jesus says. He says, go pray in secret, go pray in secret, go pray in secret, go pray in secret. But the second one is your social conscience. A second indicator is not just your personal spiritual life, but the second one is your social conscience. If we as a church do not cultivate people who have a private spiritual life, a, a, and by private, I just mean a secret one, one that happens when they're not here, we failed at church. The second is true. If we do not create people who have a social conscience, who care about other people and love their neighbor, we have failed as a church. And God would say to us what he just said in Isaiah. You remember what he said? He said at the very end, he said, do you know why I will not listen to your prayers? Do you know why? He says, because you have not done justice. He says, seek, uh, serve the orphan and the, the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Defend the oppressed. Learn to do right and seek justice. He cares about our social conscience. There's a parallel passage at the end of the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 58 where he starts for the first seven verses and he says, you fast all the time. You're like spiritual ex expert at fasting. I don't know about you, but I think of fasting as like the, like the, the craziest crossfit of spiritual disciplines. I'm like, that's for the crazy people. And these people do it all the time. There's only one day in the Old Testament you have to fast and that's the day of atonement. But these guys are fasting two and three and four times a week. And God says to them at the end, he says, like, I will not listen no matter how many times you talk. Why do you keep saying we've fasted, but we haven't seen God show up? We've humbled ourselves, but God hasn't noticed us. He says, the reason why is because on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrels and strife and striking each other with wicked swords. You cannot fast today and expect your voice to be heard on high. This is the kind of fast. Uh, he, and he goes on to say, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only a day for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying around? In verse 6 he says, this is the kind of fast I want. To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will appear, appear quickly. 
Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and God will say to you, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. Then the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations, and you will be called the repairer of the broken wall, restorer of streets. God does not want our religious observance if we are not also concerned about those around us in need. I'm afraid that too many churches are measuring the wrong things. Measuring how many people have come and not how many people have been sent out to serve. Because God has invested us. Too many people are measuring people's doctrinal purity. And believe me, I love doctrine. Like more than the average human being. I love it. Doctrine matters. That's one of my key things. But too busy trying to believe, figure out if the person in front of them believes the right thing. Instead of trying to figure out how can I love and serve this person? What do they need? What can I bless them with? Too many people are pro-life without being pro the living needy, without supporting those who are already alive. And I think abortion is, is a terrible decision. But we cannot expect women to make a different decision while we don't help them. So are we actively seeking to help single mothers and their under-resourced families? There is a scourge of fatherlessness in our nation. There are 29 million kids living without a father. 29 million. That's almost a third of all the children. Children who grow up in single-parent families are four times more likely to live in poverty, nine times more likely to drop out of high school, and 20 times more likely to be incarcerated. 71% of all substance abusers grew up in fatherless homes. 70% of all teen pregnancies happen from fatherless homes. If you're a single parent, we love you and we are for you and we will do everything we can to fill in the gaps. If you will help us, we don't know how, but if you'll help us. But it also means that we have to take an active role. And the first one, dads, and I don't talk to you guys enough, but dads, it means you gotta be a father to your kid. It means love your kid. Do not be so busy giving your kid everything they want that you do not give them the one thing they really need. You. You. They need you. Here I am, son. Here I am, daughter. Let's try to figure this awkward parenting conversation thing out. Love your wife. The greatest gift we can give our children is to have a loving marriage. Jack knows in our family he comes second. He hates it, but he knows it. But I love Claire more than I love Jack. That's a weird way to say it, but if if there's a conflict, she wins. You might say that's because you have to sleep with her. That is also true. But it's because a stable, me and Claire on the same page is the best gift we can give Jack, period. And then lastly, social activism. We can't be here on Sunday and then oppressive in the workplace without working. We can't just be anti-drugs without being invested in recovery efforts. We can't just be for good education for our kids without being concerned about our neighbor's kids. We, we have to care about the refugees 
We have to care about those who have no place. You saw that he says, provide the poor wanderer shelter. When you see them naked, clothe them. Don't ask if they deserve it. Don't ask how they got this way. Just give them some clothes. At the end of time, I know I went too long. I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. The clock's gone. It's not my fault. Let's be a group of people that says we would rather help too many people. Because I'm not sure that's a sin. I'm not sure I'll ever have to, I don't know that I'll ever have to repent for helping too many people. I'm not sure God will ever say, darn it, Andrew. But I do think it's a sin to not help someone because I'm suspicious. Because I don't trust them. To not help enough. Let's be kind to people who are willing to help too much. For the fame of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we want you, 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 you. We don't want to do a song and dance here. Our church does not work if you don't show up. And so we don't want to talk about you like you're not in this room. God, I don't want to teach people about you. I want to introduce them to you. Like, that's the great joy of my life. And I can't do it. I cannot do it. Only you can do it, Holy Spirit. So right now, God, I'm just going to trust that right now some conviction has poured over my brothers and sisters the way it has poured over me all week. God, and I pray right now while we take up the offering in a few minutes that my brothers and sisters would think about the question, what do I need to change in my life to give God more of me? Not more of my stuff or more of my time, but more of me. God, would you reveal new rituals to them, new prayer regimens, new books to read, new Bible apps, whatever it is, God, would you bring it to them? Would you bring it to me? Because I don't yet love you as I ought. In Jesus' name we pray.
seated. God, we come to you this morning in awe of your goodness to us. You have given us so much, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that as Andrew has been preaching this morning, that these offerings we present to you today, Lord, are given out of our love for you, not because we have to, but because we get to give them, Lord. And I pray that they will be used to spread your word, to make you famous. And Lord, just as you are so good to us, we also know that you are our refuge and our strength. You are our help in all situations in our life. And Lord, sometimes we go through troubling times, and it's our prayers today that you would be with us through these times, Lord, whether we are having hard times in body, mind, or spirit. We pray, Lord, that you will just be with us and strengthen us in these times. Be with us when we mourn the loss of loved ones. Be with those who, Lord, are suffering from loneliness or depression or addiction, Lord. We know that you are the one that can handle it all. And Lord, just bless them and let them feel your presence and know that they are not alone in these struggles, Lord, and to know that nothing, nothing can separate us from your love. And because of that, Lord, we come to you now, lifting up those that are on our hearts and minds this morning. have heard those names that were lifted up, Lord, and we pray that you would be with them, that they would feel your presence and that they know that they're not alone in their struggles. We also pray for those that are in our bulletin, Lord, be with those as well. And even for those that we don't know about, Lord, we know that you do. And in your great love, just be with them and give them peace and comfort that only you can bring, Lord. We come praying for our church, Lord, that we would be a church that is loving and open to all who enter our doors. We pray for our leaders and our country. We pray that our leaders, Lord, will lead with wisdom and that, Lord, they would want to be doing good for the people and not just thinking about their own selfish egos. And, Lord, we pray that as a nation we would get back to worshiping you as we should. And we're so grateful, Lord, for all your word. We're especially grateful, Lord, that you taught your disciples how to pray and us as well. And be with us now as we pray the prayer that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So 
Let us now reflect together by singing our final song found in your hymn books on page 540, My Hope is in the Lord. We will sing only verses 1 and 2. Please stand.